and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we walk and talk our way through popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their contents and history. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. wonderful time recently catching up with people I haven't spoken to in quite a while and it was so nice to do that and not wait until you know the end of the year or the beginning of the year to try and catch up with everyone and my guest was one of those people we had so much to catch up on and I had to thank him because I don't think he realized how important a role he played in my life Tony Fairweather The name will be familiar to you if you were like me in the 80s and 90s going to all these wonderful events um, like Will the Real Black Man Please Stand Up and all those kind of events that we used to look forward to going to to have some fun. And then there was the serious side of things, attending book launches and all different types of events. And Tony was the leader in most of those things. And when I met Tony, he said to me straight away, what a voice you have and what a presence you have. And I was like, okay. But I will say that because of him, I was privy to and uh, spoke to quite a few people, in fact, launching their visits in the UK, launching their new books. And I include the late and wonderful Angela Levy, Ian Levantant, Terry McMillan, so many of them. But now he's an author. And of course, I just had to talk to him. If you're interested in West Indian culture and the Empire Windrush, you must not miss our interview. It's coming up later. Tony chose his metaphor and his rationale for selecting it is riveting. The metaphor is every bench has a batty. I do like the sound of it. It's quite a funny metaphor. It brings so many different visions to my mind. Batty, if you don't know, is most commonly used to refer to a bottom a bum, a rear, a rump, a posterior. Well, however you choose to say it, I think you understand what I mean. Every bench has a batty derives from Jamaica. It was said bench and batty, slightly different or just a little shorter than today's phrase. It's a term used to describe the relationship between two inseparable friends, the relationship being described as a batty or bum, paired with a bench or seat, as the two things often seem to pair well, and when you do pair them together, they are very close. Bench and batty. Bench and batty. Gita try now. Bench and batty. Bench and batty. Batty will probably be our focus word of the episode. I think that's what gives this metaphor its unique feel. Here's the world's most famous non-Jamaican, Ali G, using the term. Because this government's conduct... This government's conduct of economic policy has not only been incompetent, it has been unscrupulous, untrustworthy and untruthful. They is this in our posse. I was going to sort this. And look at this. Order. Order. 
What is he doing? Um, I'm not sure, Prime Minister. And for you, sir, to come down and step up to me and have the... Relax, Yabati. We already know it means your bum and how that relates to a bench, but there's another meaning. This meaning is a kind of British slang term. It's commonly referring to being mad, insane or crazy. I'm not sure if it's specific areas of Britain or if it's an age group that holds the saying. We're going to move on to how this phrase came about. We know now a little more about the word batty and its Jamaican origin, but I've taken for granted that you all know of Jamaican patois. It is considered a language, despite its origin, the majority of Jamaicans speak it. Here is author Dr. Caroline Cooper discussing it a little further. And what the linguists say is that the first phase of a new language that is being created is called a pidgin, where you have words from both, from all of the languages mixed up, and you have a sort of elementary grammar. It's not a well-developed grammar, but you know, you come and you point at something and say, sheep. And you say goat, dog, you know, and what happens too is that the phonology, the pronunciation systems that we brought from Africa impacted how we pronounce the English words. So dog or whatever regional dialect of English we brought said dog, we might change it to dog. So one of the one of the frequent differences you see between the language of Patois had its first stage of development in the 1700s. Slaves from West and Central Africa picked up English dialect from the slaveholders who were primarily speaking in English. It evolved into what is known as Patois, English words with a Jamaican accent and vocabulary. Well, at least that's how it started to evolve. Patois is a form of Creole, which is a Jamaican interpretation of the English language. Creole languages are often stigmatized to be low prestige due to this fact. Today I'm going to talk about some special kinds of languages called pidgins and creoles. You've probably heard those terms before, maybe in the names of certain languages like pidgin English or Haitian Creole, but please note, there is not just a single pidgin language or a single creole language. They're actually referring to categories of languages. There are many pidgins and many creoles around the world. First, what do they have in common? Well, pidgins and creoles are new languages that develop when speakers of different languages come into contact with each other and have a need to communicate. Many pidgins and creoles have arisen when colonial powers came into contact with local people as they spread around the world. So what's the difference between pidgins and creoles? Well, pidgins are non-native lingua francas, while creoles have native speakers. So pidgins have no native speakers, they arise because of the need for a lingua franca, but if that language survives and becomes the native language of the next generation, then it is now a creole language. It's amazing that Jamaicans still speak Patois and how it has evolved from such horrible circumstances. I can only imagine the harsh exposure and use of the English language their ancestors had to interpret from. It really shows the strength and connection they must have had when they were together. Slaves adapting their identity, preventing their complete domination from the British and Europeans, turning something harrowing into something rather beautiful, even if it is used to talk about a bottom these days. When we interpret something harrowing into something nice, it can often be reversed. An example, if you will, is the joy of being gifted some chocolates maybe over the Easter period. 
And if you listen to our Easter episode, you might already know what I'm about to say. The joy of receiving and then eating your chocolate is really nice and tasty. But if you overindulge slightly, it could give you a sore tummy. That example is probably not the best segue, considering our next dampening subject of discussion. You may have heard the expression batty boy or something along those lines, usually referring to a homosexual in a derogatory response, forming the Jamaican patwa word batty. There was a lot of discussion surrounding this Ali G version of batty. We don't want to say this, but most of you ain't never going to see 11. Buka! Drivers. <laughs> Look, he's crying. Homo, homo. Hey, we'll have none of that language here. The word is batty boy. Batty boy, batty boy. Better. Not very nice. Homosexuality as a whole is illegal in Jamaica, which I just can't begin to fathom. In 2006, Time magazine gave the label of most homophobic place on earth to Jamaica. It's not just the government, but the general public can take the sentiment into their own hands. What would you guess was the biggest problem facing the police in Jamaica's capital? Perhaps the high crime rate? Or levels of poverty? Not according to the deputy superintendent here. For him, it's this group of homeless people. Their crime? Being openly gay and transgender in a society where male gay sex is punishable by 10 years hard labour. JFLAG, founded in 1998, is the first ever social justice organization that advocates for the human rights of all LGBT individuals in the nation. In 2015, it held its first ever Pride event and has been celebrating it every year. Time to talk to my guest, Tony Fairweather. As I said earlier, the man responsible for my start in live presenting. Tony founded The Right Thing, an events company established to promote black authors, which led to his working with a veritable who's who of the black literary world, including Bernadine Evaristo, Dr. Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, Tony Morrison, Terry McMillan, and many more. Tony is also the founder and curator of the Windrush Collection, a touring exhibition of artifacts associated with the Windrush generation. He is from Jamaican heritage and will pronounce today's metaphor much better than I can. Tony, can you remember when we met? Oh my God. <laughs> I, I know. It's got to be over 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think it was to do with one of the shows. And I think he was working for a magazine or a TV company. That seems to run in my head for some reason. Um, and he was around a show I was doing, and I can't remember what show it was. Yeah, I tried to remember, and I, I just couldn't remember. And I think it could have been one of the shows, uh, something to do with um, being black, black relationships or something in Brixton somewhere. That was many, many years ago. But what I remember the most when I think of you is being at a book launch. And I was there, I believe, working. And we had a conversation and you said to me, I don't know if you can remember this. You said to me, 
have you ever done book launches? And I said, no, wouldn't. And you said, well, I think that you should. I think that you, you know, you can do this. You have the personality to do this. And I'm thinking, never in my life have I ever thought of this. No way. And you said, I'll be in touch. And I, I was like, yeah, okay. And then I was surprised when you called me and you said, oh, as, as, to me, as if you didn't even ask me, you just told me that I was going to do this book launch. <laughs> That sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. I, I cannot, I know it's very, very long time ago, but you know, I have to thank you because you had that faith in me where I didn't even see it for myself. And I did that uh, first book launch with you and then, of course, went on to do many other things. But if you hadn't recognized that in me, I wouldn't have either. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. I always thought talent and you have bundles of talent. So it was quite easy to spot. Well, you know, sometimes people spot things and they don't uh, acknowledge it and they don't no. uh, allow people to, to move forward. And that's something that you've always done from the time I've known you, not just with me, but with others. You have catapulted lots of people who you remain sometimes in the background and people aren't aware of it. So I would like to acknowledge that and recognize that. So, of course, when I saw that you had written a book, I was a big smile. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this thing is staring at me right in the face. You promoted so many famous authors and here you are now putting yours together. And what a title. As soon as I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I felt like I identified with it. Although I am not of that generation, I identified with it. And in reading it, there was so much going ahead. And of course, I would love to talk to you more about that. But first, I'd like to know, when did you start thinking about writing a book? And can you tell us more about it? It first came around because uh, history is my favorite subject at school and, and just throughout my life. I love history programs, etc. And talking to my mother and my late father and aunts and uncles who are no longer here, they used to tell me stories about when they were younger. I used to ask them about stories when they were younger. And um, they used to tell me about when they were young, when they came over and how frightening it was. And, and these stories stayed with me. And a lady called Miss Davis uh, told me her one day was telling me her story. And unfortunately, a week later, she passed. And I thought, I've got to document these things because these people are passing and no one's documenting the story before they came. So I started to write, just keep notes of things that were said to me. And characters started appearing. I started to write it as a story. And these characters, I swear to you, they visited me and started telling me how they want to be told and their stories. And I started just writing. I had no storyline. I just started writing. I, I thought that the main thing was to follow the ships, the real ship, which the Windrush ship, which it went to Trinidad, Mexico, um, Jamaica and Bermuda. And then two weeks over to Tilbury Docks in London. And I thought, wouldn't it be with all the different nationalities I've spoken to, Trinidad people, Mexican people, etc. Let's put different characters getting on the ships at different stops. But let's get their backstory before they got on the boat. How they sold the pigs, the goats, uh, had to borrow money, sell their tools, their cars, just to get on that boat and pay that 28 pounds, 10 shillings, which is 600 pounds in today's money to get on that ship. And I thought it'd be great to have different characters from different stops and then them all mingling together on one boat for two weeks heading towards London 
and what fun and games could come out of that. And that's how the story started. Well, when I first started reading the book, probably because I know you, there were one or two lines and I thought, I could hear Tony saying that. The language that you used for some of it, I thought, I can see Tony really understanding where these characters are coming from because, yes, they come from all over the Caribbean, but the cultures, and a lot of people think that when you're from the Caribbean, you're from the Caribbean and the culture's all the same, but, but they're not. And I could tell the different cultures by what you said. And there were many characters. We're not talking about two or three. There were many characters. And you had to ensure that, and you know, as a, a Caribbean people, we are very critical when someone is talking or writing about us. So you had to understand these different cultures and it doesn't matter that if we are living in the UK we still know where we come from and you've got all these different characters doing so many different things but I think one of the most important things for me in reading the book 28 pounds 10 shillings a Windrush story was well I think of the people who came to Tilbury on the Empire Windrush all I can see are smartly dressed Caribbean people. The men in their hats and the women all, everyone so smartly dressed. And I didn't look at what it took for them to actually get here. And I don't know whether that's just me and my generation. And I'm sure if I asked my children, I think they'll tell me, oh, that's the ship that came, you know, uh, to England. Um, and everyone was dressed so-and-so, because that's what they see, but they haven't seen the story. So when I read your story, I found it very difficult sometimes to differentiate what was really true. I know it's the, it's a fictional, it's, it's lots of different stories, but some of the incidents that occurred, I never imagined or even visualized that these things were happening. I just thought people got on the boat like you do and you've just got your friends and you stay in your cabin and you go out and you're just with your one or two friends and that's it. But your story, your book tells a story of all the communities coming together with all these different incidences. Were these incidences purely based on story as you were writing it, things coming out of your, your mind? Or were some of these incidences based on other conversations that you've had with people uh, who perhaps traveled on the Windrush or their relatives and friends? It's a mixture of both. Obviously, stories have been told to me since I was growing up. So they stayed in my subconscious when I was writing it. And I was surprised too some where my pen or my fingers took me on my laptop. Some of the incidents on there were actually told to me by elders. Um, I didn't put their names in there to protect their, some of them are still alive. Some of them are in their 90s. Some were actually on the Windrush, but the stories are from different ships. So I've got many stories from different ships, but I've condensed onto the Windrush ship, put it on one ship. And also, you've got to remember, and we can talk about this uh, in the interview, about the ships that came before the Windrush, because the Windrush was a propaganda ship. And you've got to realize when you say to your children, remember those people coming off, because that's the only film that's available to us of us coming off the ships from the Caribbean. There was a producer before that. There was the Ormandy. There was the Almenza that came in 1947. Windrush came in 1948. And uh, these ships took Caribbeans. One of them was a banana boat. 
And that's where the saying came from, get back on your banana boat. Because a lot of West Indies came on that particular ship, which was the crops were bad that year. And the captain decided to make some money. We took some people to London on, on that banana boat. And the conditions were terrible in that ship because they weren't meant really for passengers. But the, the, the stories are mostly from my imagination and some stories that were said to me. One of the incidences that, of course, I think people are going to be a little like, whoops, I wanted to ask you, was the rape scene and its promised resolve. Now, I know it's perhaps not all true, but why did you feel that that should be part of the book? A uh, story was said to me by an elder of a woman being assaulted on one of the ships by one of the crew members. Oh. And, uh, and uh, I thought, and another lady said to me, who didn't know this other woman, about a year or so later, that she actually heard of a, a rape that happened on one of her ships when she came over. Um, so one of the, again, the English soldiers got drunk and they assaulted one of the women and raped her. So I wanted to uh, put that in the book because these things did happen. Um, I wanted to show that it was wartime, so I brought the Nazi element into it. And I also wanted to show that the character who was uh, raped, her strengths and, uh, and, and her courage and how she faced that and how she faced them down and the captain down and said, no, I'm not letting this go. Um, and I, wanted, I thought that would be a good part to put in, this, in there to show the different levels of existence that happen, that can happen on a ship. Why do you think this book is an important read? I think it's important to read because when people think of the Windrush people, they think again of that image of smiling people coming off the boat. And the second thing they think of is the Windrush scandal but people were sent back home. We've been living here for years. In my opinion, they don't look that there's actual people behind this. There's human beings. And part of the reason why I wrote this book is to put clothes on this argument about Windrush people and how it became and why they came here and how they got here. And they were invited here by the King of England and the English government. And, and they came to help the mother country because everybody who comes from the Caribbean, no matter what island you're from, was taught the British history, the kings and queens of England. And they saw that as the mother country. And that's how we refer to as the mother country. So when the call went out to come and help the mother country, and things were very bad in the Caribbean after the war, not forgetting that the economy was on its knees, there was no jobs, people were literally living off the land. To get to England where you knew you could make a lot of money and send it back to support your family, you wanted to get on that boat. And uh, £28, 10 shillings, as I said before, was the equivalent of £600. It was a lot of money today, let alone in those days. So uh, I wanted to show the determination of the people. I wanted to show that they had a story and they came here for a reason. And everybody was coming here for five years and they were going back. Nobody wanted to stay here. Everybody wanted to come to make money to go back home. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Winrose scandal went for people who came over without the right papers. And when Maggie Thatcher said you've got a deadline to sign the papers to get your citizenships, they did not for whatever reason. Right, okay. And that's why they went gunning for them. So I'd say 98% of the people that were sent back were born abroad. Very few, the people that were born here had nationality papers. It was the people who came abroad who didn't have the right papers when they came in. Because in my book, I state that their children were in someone's passport. And that was the beginning of the scandal and they didn't um, renew, uh, get their paperwork done as adults. Everything that 
you've said here points to not just being educational. It was a very entertaining read as well. And I found that I couldn't put the book down because it was teaching me things that I wasn't aware of, even, you know, as an adult, um, I, my parents didn't come on the Windrush and I don't think I know anyone who came to England on the Windrush, but I've attended, you know, many events uh, celebrating it. I started to feel that I, I knew some of the characters. I laughed with them. I got angry with them. And it was, to me, this is not a book that, although it tells about the Windrush story, to me, this is a book for everyone to read, regardless of your culture, because there is a story to it. And it's just an, a lovely read. I, I need to ask you if you had any support or guidance from any of those famous authors that you have publicized in the past. Did you have any, anyone kind of giving you any pointers? Did you tell anyone, anyone you were writing? I didn't tell anybody I was writing the book. I started this book four years ago. And the majority of it was written in Tobago when I went on holiday. And I just, the bug just got me. And I was on holiday with my partner and she went out with her friends. And I just sat on the veranda of their house and just write. And they just left me alone. I just got into it. I don't know, the fever just took me. And uh, the characters flowed and being in the Caribbean with, with the sun and the palm tree, and that just made it all real. And, and, I, and I say it now and I openly say, those spirits came and visited me and they wrote that book. I, I was just the person moving the pen around. Um, things just came to me. They literally just came to me. And I just wrote it as I saw it. And I didn't get any help from any famous authors, because I think that's the worst thing I could do. Because um, then I'm now taking on their idea and their version of what they want. So I didn't tell anybody until I finished. And then when I finished, the first person I gave it to was my partner. She read it, didn't say a word. And when she put it down, she said, this has made me laugh and cry. And that's right. And I thought that will get me to the end of this book. Then I went back in the book again, re-edited it. And then I took that to Hope Road Publishing, which is a black publishing house owned by Rosemary Hudson, who's a Jamaican, who I had met when I was doing book promotion under the right thing. And she was working at Random House and Penguin and all those other places. And she said to me one day, one day I'm going to have a, a publishing house. And I said, will you do that? And if I ever write a book, I'll come to you first. Yeah, as you know, I've got a very long memory. And mm -hmm. so when I did finish it, I contacted her. <clears throat> I said, I'm going to send you something via email. Let me know if you're interested. Nothing happened for a week. She came back to me and said, I love it. I want to do something with it. You need an editor. Um, it got, she got me editor, Charles, uh, who got it straight away when he read it. And he helped me to knock it into shape. Because as you know, there's a sequence of things that need to be done. And I'm mm -hmm. dyslexic. So my spelling was all over this place. Um, and he had to tidy all that up. So some practical things we did, but the story, I, I own that. Uh, I, it came out of my head and it came out of some stories that were told to me. And the book cover, it's, it's tremendous. It's wonderful. Yes, it's a great. Oak Road Publishing designer in-house team did that. That's what was excellent. And what I love about it is they're going on the ship. All the images you see of the Windrush people are coming off the ship at Tilbury. Yes. You never see pictures of them getting on the ship. And the colours those colours that we wore, because we saw it in black and white. If you saw it in colour, these were the colours that they were wearing, the yellows, the blues, the oranges. And I said yes. to the designer, I want some bright colours, because these were the colours they were wearing when they got 
because these were told to me by elders. When we came off, she said everybody around them had brown or grey on. Yes. We came out with a, a flood of colours off of this boat. They <laughs> us. We were aliens coming up. Yes, so I, can, I, can, I can see that because, I mean, that's what, how we dress in the Caribbean, you know, mostly bright colours. <laughs> I can see that. Oh, well, and I have to say your, your PR shot, I think, is the best picture I've ever seen of you. I have to say that. It's a wonderful shot. Well, thank really you. Nice That's the one taken by Sharon Wallace. The oh, Sharon. Sharon. oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh. Yes. Well, she's, uh, she's a queen when it comes to photography. So, yes, I can see that. Okay. Now, I have to say also that um, you made our writer, Clark, and our editors, Rich and Sam, have a real laugh when I told them what your metaphor was. They didn't know how <laughs> to start to, especially the social media editor, Rich, because he has to put this uh, graphically. And uh, coming from the UK with no background of the Caribbean, it was like, okay. <laughs> this is a really challenging, but very, very interesting. And uh I hope that uh, I'm going to send you the video that he produced and it was just, it's, it's so lovely what he has done. So for people who are thinking, okay, what is this metaphor? It is, every bench has a batty. Now I say it in the, with a UK accent. I think, Tony, you say it the proper way. <laughs> every bench has a batty. Yes, okay. A batty. <laughs> a batty. <laughs> <laughs> the English way. Every bench has a batty. I don't know, I just can't get rid of that English accent. All these years traveling, it just won't go away. So why did you choose that metaphor? How does that resonate with you? The book is full of quotations that our parents told us. Sayings, Caribbean sayings, slang sayings. I've used them all in the book. And my favorite saying has always been, every bench has a bati, which means there's someone for everyone. That's what it actually means. So, um, and I just love that. The way only a Caribbean person could come out with that saying to mean that there's someone for everyone, you know? So when my sister, I remember when my sister broke up with her first boyfriend and she was crying and my mum looked at her and said, every bench have a body, no worry. <laughs> <laughs> and that stayed with me forever. <laughs> That's just a simple thing like that, you know? So if you read a book, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, sayings, local sayings, island-wide sayings, a saying from Trinidad, from Bermuda, I've put into the book. Yes, and uh, at the back of the book, uh, you also have a glossary that will yeah, explain to those people who uh, don't know some of the terms. And I think that was a really a great thing to do because I knew a lot of them, but not all of them. So it was really nice when I got to the end and I I saw that. So, as I said earlier, this is a book for everyone. How can people buy the book? Where can they find it? You can get them, um, if you can, through the publishing house, which is www.hoperoadpublishing.com. The reason why I say that because, and I'm very strong on us recycling our money, keeping our money in our community. So if you can go through them, I would be pleased. But you can get it on Amazon, and it's on, it should be in most good bookshops from the 26th of May. It'll be in Waterstones, it'll be in all the, all the major shops. And if it's not in your local bookshop, please go and order one. Because if you order one, they have to order two or three. And that's a way to get us into local bookshops. 
but please just go around and order one. Now, I can't let you go without asking you about your exhibition. So can you tell us about your Windrush collection? Well, it started um, four, again, four years ago when Croydon asked me to put in a proposal for Windrush Day in Croydon. And they was telling me they want to do this jump up thing, carnival, and I said, well, what about our history? What about our culture? We're all just jump up the music. There's more to us than this. And they said, what do you have in mind? And I said, what about showing the way we live? And I said, if you can come up with something, we give you some space at the Museum of Croydon. First of all, I didn't know there was a museum in Croydon. And secondly, I thought, okay, I bought my big mouth. Now I better put trousers on. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to my mother and I said, can I lend some of your furniture? Like, Please. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, just, I went to her friends and I bought, uh, loaned ornaments and things. And I went to secondhand shops and I bought things. And I put together a front room and in under glass cases, some letters that some lovely ladies sent me from the Blue Airmail. The uh, Caribbean Nursing Association loaned me one of their original uniforms, the ex-servicemen, so let me his uniform and so on. And we had a, a small display in the museum of Caribbean lifestyle in the 40s and 50s. While I was doing this, Delia, I came across people who said, oh, if only you had contacted me last week. My mum died. We cleared the house. Oh, if only. I kept oh. hearing the same thing. And I started to contact removal men that I knew. And they started to ring me and say, we're cleaning the house. Come down now. And I literally, I'm taking things out of skips. Some families, I've gone there uh, and said, if you're cleaning the house, can we have this for the women's collection? You'll be acknowledged. And uh, it's on permanent loan, so you can have it back anytime you want. And they've been more than happy. They said, it's going to go in a skip. No one wants it. Everyone lives in an Ikea house, so this doesn't fit in with their lifestyle. And it's going to end up being thrown away. And I've managed to salvage some real rare things like a tall man's wardrobe. You know what tall man's wardrobe is? Does that have interest? No. Tall man wardrobe is about the height, a little bit taller than you. And it's put in a room where they had two hotbeds. And I call hotbeds because two men slept nights and two men slept days. And in the middle of the two rooms, another man would sleep on the floor. And there's enough room to put about four men's suits in one hanger with all your possessions on it. And it's about as tall as a man. And they're very rare because they were used just after the war um, when people were renting out rooms by rooms. And when our parents came over, no one would offer them any accommodation because they had the signs, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Mm-hmm. So if a black man had a room, he has about six men living in there with him. So I started the collection and I now have the front room, the bedroom and the kitchen on display. And that will be at the Bernie Grant Art Centre in June and also the Black Cultural Archives from June right through to the end of August. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm definitely going to go down there and have a look. I think it's so important for us to see our roots, to see where we have come from. And uh, I thank you so much for all your efforts, Tony. And it was wonderful talking to you today. What an interesting guest with great perspective. Now let's get back to our metaphor of the week. Every bench has a batty to discover other ways this quote can be interpreted. Now I think it's time for some interpretations. One of my favorite things about metaphorically speaking is not knowing what we'll discover. Knowing metaphors means different things depending on your culture, your beliefs, and the story you're telling or explanation you're giving. This show allows us to branch out and see what we can conjure up. I get the sense that this saying could be about finding purpose or maybe feeling you belong someplace that there's something or someone out there for everyone. 
It could be a hobby or your job or even just a place you enjoy going. Maybe there's a beach you love to visit or a park you love to walk in. Maybe there's a bench there and when you sit down and soak it all in, you feel as though that's where you belong. What is your favourite place? Um, uh, uh, Italy. Italy? Yeah, I like pizza. <laughs> and yeah. the beaches. Yeah. Yeah, Italy. No yeah. specific place, just Italy. Oh no, southern Italy, like Sorrento, Naples. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you've been to some of these places before? Yeah. Okay, and that. particularly good pizza? Yeah, it's like three euros. It's like... Joking? No, I felt like a stone when I went, but <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, down there. Do you know what? I, I enjoy my fishing, so probably a childhood lake that I used to fish in Shoreham called Passy's Ponds. That's oh, yeah. probably my favourite place. Great. And how often do you still go there now? Yeah, I still go there uh, once a month if I'm lucky, if I get yeah. the time off work to do it. But yeah. And do you get any luck? Sometimes, but sometimes not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could have a favourite. Finding this place or bench or however you want to imagine it, it might be a place of rest, which is the reason for most seats. A place you can stop and relax before going back to what you were previously doing. Is the phrase about finding your comforting place in an uncomfortable world or maybe you're just thinking to yourself, it's really not that deep, Delia. You're talking about a bench and a bahuki. I think we can all appreciate an interpretation or two. I actually think this metaphor could represent appreciation. Let's imagine a young child on holiday with their parents. They absolutely adore the sea and swimming and everything in the water. The creatures, the plant life and the feeling that there is more to be found in its depths. After a few years, that same child and their love for the sea might turn into a possible career choice in the form of a marine biologist. Years later, that same spark of love and interest brings that same interested child to discover a new species of blobfish. Pursuing that interest and desire, or even if it's a, just a hobby, can bring great things, happiness or a career, and even if it doesn't bring you either, it does no harm having that one hobby or interest that you just can't get enough of. I'm Rachel Butler. I'm a marine biologist and wildlife filmmaker, and I've just finished working on Oceans, Our Blue Planet. I've seen some pretty amazing things underwater, like being in the middle of a super pod of dolphins or coming face to face with ragged tooth sharks in the middle of a shipwreck. When people hear about these amazing wildlife encounters, they often ask, how do you become a marine biologist? My first answer would be, you need to figure out what your passion is. For me, it all started when I was a little girl. Almost every single day in the summer, my dad and I would go rock pooling. But as soon as I watched the film Free Willy, I became a little bit obsessed with orcas and with whales. I'd draw little orcas and little orca heads, whale heads and mermaids and scribble all over my school books because uh, I was always daydreaming about, about what else might live in, under the waves. It is a bit of a stretch, but that one friend we can go to whenever things get tough or we want to do something fun should be appreciated. Because every bench has a batty can sound comical, I always wondered in what situation would it have been used for the first time? Like our guest Tony said, his grandmother said it to him in a matter-of-fact manner, and if I were to use it, I'd probably be using it as a way to say your time will come. 
Have a thought how you'd use it. It's not as easy to apply as you think. Jamaicans were likely to use the phrase as it was originally bench and batty, which is a term used to describe to people who are rarely seen without each other so that they're inseparable. It's about being supportive. It's like the opposite of chalk and cheese. And then this comes to mind. I can remember audiences belting out Bette Midler's version of Wing Beneath My Wings at the top of their lungs, which always leads me to remembering this version by father and son, Eddie and Gerald Levert. I was honoured to have a teddy bear Gerald kissed and gave me a few months shortly before he passed. Let's have a sing-along. It must have been cold there in my shadow To never have sunlight on your face You were content to let me shine Always walked a step behind. See, I was the one with all the glory, while you were the one with all the strength. Yes, you were only a face without a name. Heard you complain, no. Did you ever know that you're my hero? You're everything I would like to be. also have this other interpretation that came to mind when I heard this saying. You might think of it as being a bit weird, but hey, I'm unique. It was about the sharing aspect of a bench. When you sit on a bench, let's say in a park, it's a very slim chance that you're the first to sit on it. There's probably been hundreds of people on that same walk in the park and hundreds of people decide to take a pit stop on that specific bench and take in the same scenery as you the same comfort you felt after taking a seat. Another way you could share the bench is if a stranger joins you on it. Two people who have their own worlds meet for a brief period of time. Their patties share a bench. I'm not 100% sure what I'm getting at here, but I think it's a weird but quite a sweet thought. I guess I'm saying you might not be as alone as you feel. Some of these interpretations I've managed to come up with probably make you at home think I'm talking out of my batty. (laughs) Here's Billy Stewart sitting in the park. Sitting in the park 
It's time for me to get my batty out of this seat. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Thank you to our guest, Tony Fairweather, for bringing the exciting metaphor, every bench has a batty, to Metaphorically Speaking. Let us know on our social media how you interpret every bench has a batty, or if you have a bench and batty relationship with a friend you share time with. share a laugh or two about this if you share it <laughs> don't forget if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show you can reach us at colorful.com slash shows slash delia and we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast metaphorically speaking which is on apple spotify and all major streaming platforms please help us to grow Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Until then, keep safe. Goodbye.